Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome in everyone to the Determined Truth Podcast. We're uh, jumping into another interview with a special guest today. So we're really excited about this. Uh, Rob and I have both been going through one of his books. I think Rob's done a couple of his books. So Rob, why don't you introduce our guest today? Yeah, I'm really excited to have uh, Dr. Warren Carter. Uh, Warren is a New Testament scholar specializing in the gospel and empire. He's born in New Zealand, so you'll recognize the uh, accent. He's now living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, Dr. Carter has a PhD from Princeton Theological Seminary and a BD and THM from Melbourne College of Divinity in Australia. He's an ordained New Zealand Baptist minister with a membership in the Disciples of Christ. And Dr. Carter is currently the LaDonna Crane Reminders Professor of New Testament at Phillips Theological Seminary. And before coming to Phillips in 2019, Warren was on the faculty of Bright Divinity School in Fort Worth, Texas, where four times he received the Louise Clark Britton Endowed Faculty Excellence Award, which is an award voted on by the student body. I think that's actually something very um, special. So his writings include the Roman Empire and the New Testament, an essential guide, which I think we would highly recommend. He's also written John and Empire, a Matthew, storyteller, interpreter, and evangelist, a book on Pontius Pilate, a portraits of the Roman governor. Uh, another book on Matthew and Empire, another book on Matthew and the margins of religious and social political reading. So we've been kind of doing the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're ready to investigate into the Gospel of John, and we thought Dr. Carter would be just perfect now as we finish the synoptics and segue into the Gospel of John to discuss this issue of of empire and the the Gospels and the story. So so Dr. Carter, Warren, uh, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's begin. In your book, The Roman Empire and the New Testament, you state this. You say This book clearly rejects the notion that Jesus and the New Testament writings are not polemical. When Jesus declares in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not from this world, you say that he does not mean, as many have claimed, that Jesus doesn't care about Rome's empire or is only interested in spiritual realities. His claim is about the origins of his empire or empire as being from God. I I give you that quote because I recently had a conversation, kind of a text dialogue with a pastor uh, not far from me. And he says, oh, you know, Jesus didn't really seem to be over concerned with overthrowing the Roman Empire. He seemed to be concerned about working within the systems of the world. And I think we should be working within our systems and, and he meant especially, of course, the American system. So with that in mind, can you give us some thoughts on this? Yeah, thanks. We have to remember, I think, of course, immediately that the first century world is not 21st century American world. Right. And if you wanted to make any changes in the first century world, then you didn't have any of the accesses to power that uh, we might have or might think we have uh, in the 21st century. You know, there was no there was no social media. There were no options of getting a petition. There were no options of staging um, those sorts of, of activities. So we have to remember that we're dealing with a very different world and with mm-hmm. very different processes, very different traditions. So that's the first thing. Second thing I think is really important is that the Jesus of the Gospels is an eschatological or teleological thinker. Could you, real um, quick, could you just define teleological? Yeah, I like the word teleological because it comes from the Greek word telos, which means a goal. And I like it better than the word eschatology because eschatology is often interpreted as the end of the world. Right. Well, um, in fact, in the Gospels, there isn't an end of the world, but there is a goal a telos to which God is is working in terms of the establishment of the divine purposes. So 
eschatological or teleological thinkers consider the present world to be fundamentally at odds with the divine purposes. This is not the way that it's supposed to be. Hmm. And so in the first century, in the world of Jesus, the, the dominant system is that of the Roman Empire. And the Gospels, in, in my reading of them, accord a very negative verdict on the Roman Empire. Right. Um, the Roman Empire is the ever-present assumption of the New Testament Gospels. It doesn't ever go away. Even when it's not mentioned, it's still there. You get out of bed in the morning and you mm -hmm. stub your toe on empire. It, it's just there. So when Jesus speaks and acts as an eschatological or teleological thinker, he does so in light of what John's gospel calls the life of the age. Now, we've often translated this as eternal life. Mm. And I'm sorry, and I'll apologize to all folks in advance. I don't like that translation because it sounds like this coming age is, is, exists forever. And, of course, we have all these, these um, images of it. You know, the streets are paved with gold mm -hmm. and the only soundtrack is plunky harp music. And I do apologize to aficionados of harp <laughs> music. But I'm sorry, plunky harp music doesn't really do anything for me. Yeah. Rather, what we do have in the traditions, both in the gospel and in some Jewish traditions and in Hebrew Bible traditions, are some images or some pictures of what this life of the age looks like. Um, we can go back to Isaiah, we can go through Enoch, we can go through 4th Ezra and 2 Baruch. But these folks envision a very material and physical world, mm -hmm. a world that they envision to comprise um, good health and healed bodies, a world, a world of abundant fertility where all the crops grow and everybody has access to abundant food, where there's peace among the nations, where there's justice, where, where the animals all get along together as well. You know, the lion and the lamb lie down together without the lion thinking, you know, snag. <laughs> um, you know, so it's this sort of very material world um, that is the life of the age. And so I think what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus' activity is lived out and presented in the light of this goal. Now, what can a peasant artisan from Galilee do in the first century with charismatic powers? So he heals folks. He feeds folks. That's what the, you know, the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000 is about. You know, it's not just bad over-catering. It's abundance, it's plentiful because it prefigures, it anticipates the abundance and the fertility of the age to come. You know, he exercises demons, although, of course, he doesn't do that in John. I mean, this is not just razzle-dazzle. These are demonstrations. These are pictures. These are anticipations of the age to come. These are acts that repair the damage of Roman power. They roll back the damage of role of Roman power as much as one figure can do. And then, of course, he commissions followers, disciples, to do these greater works, to continue to do the same sorts of things. And the great irony of all of this, of course, is that in the end, it is the empire of God that is established. The Gospels struggle to imagine any other sort of world other than an imperial world. Mm -hmm. 
And of course, you know, an empire ruled by God is infinitely preferable to a number of, of empires ruled by a number of other of, um, characters. I understand that. Right. But ultimately, the gospels still trade in an imperial vision. You know, if you don't like what God is doing in the final judgment, then, you know, it's the chop for you, which is how empires have always operated. Yeah. Is that why you use the word empire then when you're talking even about the Lord's Prayer instead of kingdom? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, okay. the, the Greek word basileia has troubled interpreters, um, how to translate the thing. And some, some scholars don't, uh, mm-hmm. which is the easy way out, mm-hmm. just to leave it as basileia and write it in English text. But folks have tried a number of options. Kingdom has been an option. Uh, the reign, the rule have all been options. I, I don't like kingdom because I think it's a very antiquated sort of word. You know, it's mm. not a word that used much in contemporary speech. And, and for me, it kind of evokes um, knights on shining armor, mm-hmm. you know, running around, having a go at dragons um, with castles in the background and damsels leaning out the window with hair coming down to the ground and shrieking you know, as background noise. Uh, I don't believe that the work of God is a fairy tale. Right, right. So I I just don't find it helpful. So I've chosen to go with empire because it is obnoxious. Mm. It's it's in your face. And that means we have to think about it. It means we have to think about the sorts of presentations that the Gospels are making. What are we praying for in the Lord's Prayer when we pray, you know, your empire come? Mm-hmm. What will be done on earth as it is in heaven? You know, that's a very imperialist vision that in heaven already, God's will, God's empire is established. And we're asking that God will extend that to the world. It's also um, interesting because um, I never heard that phrase empire used, uh, but it does create a, a really nice juxtaposition against the concept of Roman empire versus the empire of God, if if, mm-hmm. if that's what Jesus is talking about. So I, I think it does create an interesting just, uh, you know, parallel there. Right. Yeah, it's both a juxtaposition and an imitation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It does both of those at the same time. Um, and that's a sort of a further piece of its troubling in your face sort of dimension yeah you know the lord's prayer you, you can rattle through it in about seven seconds mm. and um you know in, in in a good sunday morning seven seconds well spent but if we want to <laughs> if we want to think about what we're actually praying then um, mm-hmm. the language i think of empire stops us yeah One of the things that we've been really trying to do is stress that religion and politics are not separate things. But I believe, especially in the evangelical world, we just think of what the Bible is doing as something completely different. It's all spiritual. It's all uh, religious, right? But you note in the Roman Empire and the New Testament, an essential guide, uh, you know, your book, you say people got crucified, not because they were spiritual, but because they posed a threat to the Roman system. How might you expand on that, and especially for our listeners who might be new or just being introduced to the idea that there isn't really a separation of church and state here? Uh, how, what are different ways that they might think about that? Yeah, um, we have to think about this world as a, this world of the first century, the world that the Gospels uh, encode, um, imitate, critique. We have to think of this world as a very unified sort of world. Um, we don't have the separation. That, that we, you know, we at least pretend we have in our own world of separation of church and state. 
Um, there's no such deal in the, in the Roman world. It's all rolled into one. So, um, you know, Roman, the Roman world is very much a world of domination. It's domination is achieved through a number of means, taxes, military, military power, alliances with local groups and all that sort of stuff. But also it's, it's sanctioned by an appeal to the will of the gods. You know, the mm. Roman poet Virgil writes this great long poem called the Aeneid. Um, and part of the, the function of that great long epic is to um, display Jupiter's sanction mm. for the Roman Empire. Mm. Jupiter says in book one, you know, I give them empire without end. Mm. Uh, and it's it's the divine will that is being enacted um, through the means of Roman power. We see this on coins. Um, we have a number of coins where on one side of the coin, you'll, you'll see an image of an emperor. And then on the other side of the coin, you know, literally the power behind the throne, mm -hmm. you'll see an image of, um, of a god or goddess. Um, you, one coin I'm thinking of that was issued after the, the victories over Jerusalem in the year 70 that destroyed Jerusalem. You know, we have an image of the emperor on one side, and on the other side, we have an image of Jupiter holding the goddess Nike before she was a sports apparel company. Yep. She was the goddess of victory. Yeah. yeah. Um, and here's Jupiter holding Nike, goddess of victory, in Jupiter's hand as a way of saying, you know, this is the power behind yep. the throne. This is the power that is operating through the Roman systems. So from the Roman side, you know, this is all unified. This is, this is um, all this, the means of, of power, the means of governance, governance um, are rolled into one um, along with this religious sanction. Um, and the same thing happens on the Jewish side of things. Um, that the folks who are, who are the rulers of Judea as the Jewish historian Josephus calls them, um, are the chief priests and their allies, the leading Pharisees, leading Sadducees, scribes and elders of the people. Um, Rome commonly ruled by making alliances with right. local elites. Mm -hmm. Did it all over the empire. And it was right. very smart. Uh, it co-opted um, local leaders. It actually set up competition amongst local leaders for Roman favor. Um, it got folks on board, and it was a whole lot cheaper than rolling out even more legions. Um, and as long as local folks were willing to support, were willing to promote Roman interests, then everybody was happy. If they didn't, well, that was a whole different story. But, you know, we have in the New Testament, Herod. As in, mm -hmm. you know, killing the baby's fame, who is a Rome-sanctioned client king, right? And then the the Herodian lot got replaced by Roman governors, like Pilate. Um, and if you were sent from Rome to a place like Judea to Jerusalem as governor, then one of the things that you had to do was get along with, right? your local allies and not just get along with them 
but prove that you were dominant, right? So we have these power struggles that go on between these allies because keeping the rest, most of the population in place, was the shared agenda, the shared vision. But of course, struggles for power are always operative in terms of seeking greater reward. So chief priests, Pharisees, Sadducees, um, scribes, these are not modern clergy. Mm -hmm. Yes, they had religious responsibilities, but they are the leaders, the societal leaders of um, Judea and Galilee. Caiaphas, whom we know from the New Testament, chief priest for 18 years through four or five changes of governor. Now, that might tell you something about his prayer life, but it certainly tells you about his political smarts, mm. that he knew how to keep the other half of the power alliance happy. He knew how to keep the Roman governors happy. And I don't think that was an easy place to be. Right. Because, you know, he's the representative of these, these local traditions, these Judean traditions. Um, and, but it's not a simple, pure world. He has to get along with. He has to work in the midst of Roman power. Hmm. Um, so all these things are rolled up together. Yeah, let me summarize this really briefly, make sure I'm doing it accurately for the sake of our listeners, and then add a question onto that. The first thing that you're noting is that the religious leaders of the New Testament, of the, of the Gospels, the Pharisees, Sadducees, Scribes, were actually client kings or client in power of Rome. So Herod's a client king. He works for Rome. And thus the clash with them is not a religious clash as much as it is a political clash of empire and reign. And that's what Jesus is clashing with them as. And so you're, you're kind of countering the, the notion that Jesus is having this religious dispute with the Pharisees and Sadducees over resurrection, things of that nature. No, it's much more of, of this level of an empire. And then... Yeah, the way, yeah, the way I would say is that I, I don't like the language of religious leaders mm -hmm. um, because that I think is misleading. It makes okay. us think in terms of local clergy. Um, so I prefer to think of them as societal leaders. Mm, okay. And I think the fundamental clash between uh, of Jesus with these folks is over societal vision and practices and strategies. Mm. I can give you an example if you like. Sure. Um, so the clash over Sabbath. And we have a number of these scenes right. in the Gospels. What's at stake there? Well, it's not a question of do we observe Sabbath or not. That's not the question. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we observe Sabbath. If it's good enough for God, then it's good enough for us. Um, simple as that. The clash is over how Sabbath is observed. Because Sabbath is not just a religious practice. Sabbath is a societal practice. And it might be okay for elite folks to say, yep, we're going to have a day without work and everybody's going to comply. But if you're amongst the majority poor, most of whom function around subsistence level and you know, waver a little above and a little below depending on time of year and crops and work availability and that sort of stuff, you don't have the luxury of taking a day off work. Mm. 
I mean, you work today so that you can go to bed tonight and get up tomorrow morning. So having a day of rest as the norm is simply not going to work for much of the population. And so Jesus' teaching against that vision of doing nothing is actually a vision of mercy, that Sabbath is about doing mercy. And if that's about working in order to survive, then that's an act of mercy. If it's, um, you know, um, the, the guy whose sheep falls into the pit, you know, that's his livelihood. One sheep. Mm. He's not a rich guy. It's not a whole flock. Um, of course he's going to get it out on Sabbath because that's his livelihood. That's what he has to do. That's an act of mercy. To, to demand rest is, is actually oppressive. Uh, it's not an act of mercy. Likewise with the healing, Matthew chapter 12, the healing on the Sabbath, the guy with the withered or the dried up hand. In a society where manual, you know, what you did with your hand, manual labor was everything, then healing the guy on the Sabbath is an act of mercy. Yeah. Now he can go to work tomorrow. Now he can go to work. He can, he, he can get out of whatever situation he's in. He contribute to his whatever household he has, whatever. And unfortunately, the Gospels don't elaborate those sort right, of arguments. Right. But um, if we understand anything of that society, yeah, he can now do some work. Uh, the other thing I hear you saying also, just want to clarify that, that I'm really actually really excited about because I'm like, yes, this is exactly the point, is that the if I can use the word battle or war or contest or conflict it is between the empires of the world and the empire of God, and that the empires of the world are ultimately empowered by divine sanction. Mm-hmm. And that it's this divine sanction of those gods versus the divine sanction of God's kingdom or of God's empire. Mm-hmm. And I know you've written a work on the book of Revelation and we won't go there now, but that's obviously where you know my cup of tea is, right? Because I think that's exactly the conflict that's happening there, right? It's that the dragon is the one who empowers the beast. And, right. and I think that that, and we're going to get to this later on, so I won't skip there too quickly now. I think that really is this, where we need to frame this whole concept and whole conversation of empire so let's go there later let me let me comment now or just kind of ask you now and say this and that is uh, greg carey and there's a new book out called the state of the new of new testament studies by uh, scott mcknight and ninja gupta and early in that book uh, greg carey wrote an article and he comments that the living standards rose when empire flourished even in the provinces standards of living seem to have increased He says, former generations of scholars argued that taxation from Rome and Jerusalem impoverished ordinary people in Judea and Galilee, displacing many from their homes, but that view has not withstood scrutiny. So can you comment on that and what your thoughts on that are? Do you agree with that? And how does that play into this conversation? Um, Yeah, no, I don't agree with it. Okay. Yeah, Um, I didn't think so. uh, I think it's a little bit of wishful thinking, actually. Um, There's a lot of debate about the archaeology in the Galilee as to what it tells us. And I kind of follow this debate because I'm interested in it. And I think the archeology span in and of itself is, is pretty is difficult to interpret and it has to be interpreted. And so folks interpret depending on what sort of models they bring to, to the data. Um, I, I don't think that the prosperity of ruling elites, and we're talking about two or 3% of the population, 
according to models developed by classical scholars. Um, we're talking about two or three percent of the population of 65 million or so people. Um, my math's not very good, so I'll leave you to work out just how many people that is. But I don't think their prosperity and their wealth raises everybody else in the empire. Um, it's not a matter of what's that saying about the, the, the incoming tide or something lifts all boats. I, I don't think that works. Um, and I don't think it worked in the first century BCE, and I don't think it worked in the second century CE. Um, I think it's a very unnuanced sort of view because the primary source of wealth for many folks in the elites are non-elites. Elites are wealthy because they impoverize non-elites. Yes. Um, and they do it with taxation, for example, which was often sometimes paid by coin, but often paid literally in goods. Literally, you gave away part of your food supply, or your province had to pay a certain tribute, mm -hmm. which might uh, comprise um, a, a cash collection, or it might comprise resources, you know, ivory, um, hides of animals, um, silver, metals, whatever your province happened to be rich in, um, would get, you know, we can think of wheat from Egypt, for example, got plundered by elites for their own benefit. You know, I, I don't know how you comfort yourself with the payment of taxes in our system, but one way of comforting yourself around August, the, uh, around April the 15th or so is that, well, if we all put our little bit into the bucket, we all benefit. There was no such understanding in the first century world. Taxes weren't paid for the common good. They were paid for the benefit of elites. So um, I, I just don't buy that, you know, just because elites were enjoying great wealth, uh, everybody else was, was sharing in the goodies as well. I just don't think it, matters. it works out like that. We do know that post-70, after the destruction of Jerusalem, the emperor Vespasian, whose son Titus was the victorious general, confiscated a whole bunch of land in Judea and Galilee and gave it to his veterans and his cronies. I know that shocks us because it would never happen today. Um, but, you know, what happened to the folks who own that land? Where did they go? You know, we do know that some folks will put off their land. We do know that um, some peasant farmers who got into trouble would, would borrow would um, you know borrow a loan, make a loan, and then when they couldn't repay, they lost ownership of their land. They might stay on it, but now as tenants, but not as owners. Um, others got kicked off. We have two big pieces of evidence for that, that around the years um, in, in, in Jerusalem in about 66, and then in the year of Antioch in about 70 or 71, around those dates, the debt re record uh, buildings were burned in both cities. I mean, that's as, that's as close to a direct piece of political action as we might find apart from going to war. Mm you know, that, that folks were indebted, and if you can burn the records, then you're not in debt anymore. You know, if, you, if the computer crashes, then you're okay. So, you know, I just don't, don't buy that that's a, um, that's a view that really um, holds up. Okay. So we've kind of hinted at this, but in, in this show, we haven't really talked about patronage and how it relates to the New Testament. But, you know, as an expert in ancient Rome, could you provide, you know, your understanding of patronage and how it enlightens our understanding of the New Testament? Yeah, patronage has been a model that folks have borrowed and applied to the New Testament in several ways uh, from the Roman world. And, but often 
what has bothered me about the use of the model is that it's sort of been cut out from the much larger framework. Um, and we have to, you know, it's, it's kind of like pulling a thread and trying to leave the rest of the stuff behind. Mm. Um, patronage was a fundamental structure of the empire. It was a vertical power relationship. It's often, I've seen it presented as kind of nicely benign. Yeah, I'm sure it was benign in some ways, but fundamentally it is a vertical power relationship and it can operate right across the whole system. The, the biggest patron of all, of course, is the emperor. And then other folks in the elite senatorial and curians and cities um, can enter into uh, patronage relationships as well. It's a fundamental vertical power relationship. And if you have patrons, you've got to have clients. And so clients are folks who become dependent on um, patrons for goodies in various ways. Uh, might be gifts or food or even um, uh, money. But also clients do things on behalf of their patrons. So one of the things that you did as a client was you turned up to your patron's house in the morning, uh, what was called the salutatio. The um, patron got out of bed. You wished him, usually a him, a happy day. Um, you made sure that his coffee was brewed appropriately. Um, got him a donut, uh, whatever. And then the patron dished out the goodies. Um, it might be according to your skill level or lack of. Uh, it might be that, that a doorpost needs fixing in his house. Uh, it might be that a certain load of stuff needs being brought to his house. Or it might be that with folks with greater skills, you know, you send a couple of people off to do a business deal for you. So your power gets extended. Mm. Also, of course, the number of folks who turn out for your morning salutatio says to other people how much power and prestige and wealth, et cetera, you have. If you have a lot of folks who turn out, then obviously you're more important mm. than if you just manage a couple of folks. But it also, it's not just one-way traffic. It works the other way as well. Clients clearly benefit from these services and goodies that are dished out. But in turn, they're, the benefits come at a price. They always do. And it's a price of loyalty. You have to talk up your patron. You represent your patron in every which way possible. You pay honor to your patron. That's what the morning salutatio um, is about. So it works both ways in terms of prestige for the, for the patron, and um, it works in terms of goodies, benefits for clients. So some folks have applied this to the New Testament text in a couple of ways. Um, I think we have this structure built in to the texts so that when Jesus calls disciples, for example, some folks have said they're entering into a patron-client relationship. They bring honor to Jesus, but in being commissioned to go and extend Jesus' ministry, they extend his influence. Um, we see the same thing with, with God. Um, God provides certain benefits, and believers honor God or worship God in, in return. So we've got that reciprocity, that, that mutuality. Some folks have, have applied the, the, the pattern to Paul um, in terms of founding communities. You know, he tells the Corinthians that I am your father. You know, he brought them into existence. So he has certain authority, he has certain uh, benefits that he can bring to them in terms of the gospel 
that they are obligated to bring certain um, honor to him. And of course, one of the problems in first and especially in second Corinthians is that he doesn't feel he's being honored appropriately and he needs to sort that situation out. So one of the things that I see in my studies, especially in the book of Revelation, where I kind of land, is the fact, and I think you see this in the book of Daniel, I think you see this throughout the entirety of the scriptures. Obviously, that's what I think the Pentateuch is about as well, and even the creation account in Genesis chapter one, is that there's this cosmic war going on. So I don't know, talk to me a little bit about that, what, what you think the role of that conflict is here in, in the larger scale things. Yeah, um, I think we have to uh, distinguish the synoptics and John okay. uh, in terms of thinking about this. So and, let's do and just the for the listeners' sake, the synoptics are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, would... Mark, and yeah, Luke, okay. and then John's gospel. So let's do the Matthew, Mark, Luke thing first of all. As as I said, the um, the Roman Empire presents itself as sanctioned by the by their gods. Mm-hmm. You know, Jupiter and, and goddesses like. Um, Nike, um, to use the Greek word, Victoria, to use the Latin. Um, and so it's, under, it's an understanding that by being pious, by observing, uh, honoring the gods, the gods will then bless Rome and military uh, victories um, and prosperity for elites, um, those sorts of things. I think the Gospels have a, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a really, really trenchant critique of that. You'll remember that in in Matthew and Luke, we have this temptation story um, before Jesus actually begins his public ministry. It's in Luke chapter four and it's Matthew chapter four. And the devil makes these these offers to Jesus, you know, um, Mm -hmm. do these things and you'll have great rewards. And I think the fundamental point of the story is that Jesus is going to be the agent or the, the, the one who, who acts on behalf of God. And so even though the devil comes up with a really good idea, like let's take stones and turn them into loaves of bread. I mean, I think that's brilliant. I think that's an absolutely incredible uh, um, suggestion, you know, because lots of folks in the ancient world struggle with food insecurity. Mm. Gosh, if you could turn every stone into a loaf of bread, I mean, what a winner that is um, in our own world. But I think the real point of it is, even when the devil comes up with a good idea, uh, Jesus says, no, because I'm God's agent, not yours. I don't take my suggestions from you. One of the things that the devil offers to Jesus, if you fall down and worship me, I will give you all the empires of the world. Right. And I think that is an incredibly snarky critique. It's a blatant critique. Yes, yes. Because the dominant empire of the world is Rome. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the Gospels are saying, here it is in the hands of the devil. Yes. This is the devil's world. And the devil has control over it. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to do that. That, I think, frames the context then in the Gospels for all the exorcisms, mm-hmm. right? So Jesus is constantly casting out all these, these evil spirits that are responsible for all sorts of things. And we know from the ancient world that there's a whole 
I don't know what how to say it. There's a whole empire around um, evil spirits. And, you know, and we have documents that sort of provide job descriptions for different evil, for different demons. Mm. Different demons cause different sorts of problems. And so all the exorcisms just continue this fundamental rejection of the devil's control of the Roman world. You know, the, the healing of sick folks, for example. So that's a major, major struggle through the whole of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where, where Jesus engages in this constant struggle throughout. Now, in John's gospel, things get toned down, for want of a better way of saying it, okay. um, gets toned down. We don't have that temptation story for a starter, and we don't have the devil's claim to operate the, the empires of the world. Um, what we do have, and we have no exorcisms in John's gospel. Mm. They're gone. No exorcism. What we do have is that the devil is mentioned just three times in the gospel. And Satan is mentioned once. Mm. So yeah. the devil is mentioned three times. First of all, in chapter 6, verse 70, where a number of the disciples have gone away from Jesus. Mm. Um, the 12 are left, and Jesus says to them, well, do you want to go too? One of you is mm. a devil. Right. And then the narrator says um, he was speaking of Judas who was going to betray him. So we've got an immediate link of the devil and Judas mm -hmm. in relation to betraying Jesus for crucifixion. That link then continues in chapter 13, where you know we have the beginning in chapters 13 through 17 right. of what we might call the retreat where Jesus and the disciples get mm -hmm. together for a while. Um, chapter 13, verse 2, we're told that the devil has put it into Judas's heart to betray him. Okay, so there's the second reference. Yep. And then later on at verse 27 in chapter 13, we're told that Satan enters Judas. Not the devil, but Satan enters right. Judas. They're obviously the same. Now, what's interesting about this is that just a couple of verses earlier, in verse 27, we're told, uh, sorry, in verse 29, um, we're told that Judas is the operator of the common purse. But there doesn't seem to be any motive of greed as there is in the Synoptic Gospels, where he, he is paid to betray Jesus and seems to be helping himself to the common Purse is part of the suggestion as well. So the only other reference in John, so we've got 670, 132, 1327 is Satan. The only other reference to the devil comes in chapter 8, verse 44. Right. When Jesus talks to the Jewish leaders who go by the Greek term, the eudaioi, which has mm -hmm. a term that's caused interpreters a lot of trouble, just exactly, you know, who are these folks? And the term, I think, gets used in several different ways. And I don't think that should bother us. You know, the gospel talks about the festivals of Jews. And I, I don't think that's a negative reference. I think it's just a descriptive reference. Yeah, the, the Uidoi is, is just generically it's translated as the Jews, but but identifying them as what you're saying is hard, it's hard, right. hard to do. Yeah, because mm -hmm. Jesus is a Jew, right? Right, exactly. And he's obviously talking about an, a group other than himself. And right. I think from the clues that we get in the gospel, he's talking about the elites, the Jerusalem-based, okay. Rome-sanctioned, um, powerful folks. 
And he says to them in chapter 8, verse 44, which I think is one of the lowest points we get in the New Testament. It's just downright nasty. Mm -hmm. uh, you are from your father, the devil. Mm. Origin is everything in, mm. in John's gospel. Jesus comes from God. The Udaioi, the Jews, these, these elite leaders come from the devil, your father, the devil. You choose to do your father's desires. He's a murderer and a liar. I mean, this is vicious, nasty, mm -hmm. terrible stuff. But it, it anticipates their role in crucifying Jesus. So in John's gospel, I think the whole thing is played down, but it's crucial for its alliance, the devil's alliance with Judas and okay. the devil's alliance with these um, Jerusalem, uh, Rome allied leaders who put Jesus to death. So I, I see different emphases yep. and different okay. um, heightening of attention. But both of the Gospels would agree that the devil is at work in opposing Jesus and ultimately seeming to triumph uh, in having him killed. Of course, the gospel says that's not the end of the story. Uh, right, right. That's a, false, that's a false victory. Right, right. Resurrection. Uh, so let's go then, if we can, and take this more application to the present day then. Uh, one of the reasons I think that Jesus came to be the king and was crucified is so important is because it reminds us that Jesus is the king today and that he demands exclusive loyalty. Yet it seems that many Christians, especially in the United States, seem to embrace notions of Christian nationalism. So how do you, uh, what do you have to say to that? Just a, a couple of things, I think. I'm not very comfortable with the expression of exclusive loyalty. Okay. Partly because I think, you know, as human beings, we have multiple loyalties and multiple demands. Hmm. Now, out of those, of course, it's a matter of ranking them, right? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So, so we might have ultimate loyalty rather than exclusive okay. loyalty. Enough. And I don't think that's just to be picky. Yeah, um, yeah, fair enough. I think that's more helpful. I mean, I remember I remember as a kid hearing, as a young person, hearing lots and lots and lots of sermons about, you know, having to um, be exclusively loyal to Jesus. But I never knew what that meant. Mm. I never never knew what it looked like if I, if I ever should attain it. Yeah. How would I ever know? Because <laughs> um, I still had to, you know, go to work tomorrow. And right. uh, I had bosses who'd tell me to do things. I mean, what should I say? You're not the boss of me, Jesus is. Uh, yeah. Well, that would get me fired and got to So, you know, so I don't think it's, it's picky. Sure. And I think it's more helpful just to think in terms of, and I, I like to think in terms of a determining story. The gospel is our determining story. It's okay. the framework, um, which has ultimate loyalty. Um, as followers of Jesus, but uh, within that context, we we get to think about how we negotiate all sorts of other things that involve us as human beings. So one of those is is how do we relate to the nation state? I hear in your question some real concern about this sort of nationalism and American exceptionalism. I mean, I'm a foreigner, so I'm allowed to say mm. these things. That's right. Oh, that's, I'm allowed yeah, to say these right. things. Yes. Um, but it really bothers me. Uh, okay. It really bothers me that this close alliance, uh, I can reference a political advert that we have going on in our state at the moment um, with a particular candidate for office um, trumpeting how he has 
resisted socialism, mm. whatever that means. But he's been a lover of Jesus. Mm. Now, I know what his voting record is on anything that might provide any support for uh, the poor and the vulnerable. He's voted against it. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that's what he thinks socialism is. I, I don't know. He doesn't ever define it. But, you know, there's a whole agenda going on there, and there's a whole appeal, of course, going on there as well, that somehow Jesus is opposed to socialism, which might be understood to be caring for people and providing folks with access to what they need. That doesn't line up with what the Gospels want us to, to, to buy into. So I don't think there's any in the Gospels, I don't think it legitimates a cosy relationship, an easy relationship with nationalism or um, American exceptionalism. I think rather, um, you know, Jesus is crucified by the state. Right. Jesus didn't cozy up to it. Um, Jesus said about repairing its damage, rolling back its impact on folks. And of course, in the Gospel of Matthew, we have all this accountability in the final judgment, and there's just one question. You know, um, how did you provide for the vulnerable and the weak and the poor? Um, when did you clothe the naked and feed the hungry and care for mm-hmm. the sick? Was it the imprisoned? You know, these are the vulnerable folks. That's the ultimate goal. And, and quite honestly, our society has not done a good job right. um, around those matters. We have massive disparities of wealth in this country, just as the Roman Empire did. A massive disparities. What do I hear? 20%, 25% are food insecure mm-hmm. in this country. That's a stunning, stunning statistic. Here we are, supposedly the most powerful empire in the world, and we can't even feed our own citizens. I mean, that ought to shock us as Christians to the core. Right. I, I, that's, that's just, you know, I know we're all in love with power. Right. But, um, you know, how power is used and who has access to resources and all the rest of it is, is crucial. So I think, you know, the, the gospel story ought to help us to think about if we read it in the ways that I've been suggesting as a as a um, as a engagement with empire, rather than just sort of a nice little cozy religious spiritualized story, it provokes questions like how's power being used? What sort of vision of society do we have? Uh, what sort of structures of society do we want? Uh, who benefits and who gets hurt? Who gets who's included and who's excluded? who gets privileged and who gets shunted off to, to the margins. You know, those sorts of questions are really, really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and fundamentally, Jesus identifies with the 70 or 80% who are the powerless and the vulnerable and the marginalized. The crowds, which always scare the living daylights out of, out of elites, because they just don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, the healing of the sick, the feeding of the hungry, the casting out of, of demons. I mean, this is where Jesus' effort and energy is invested. I'm curious with this, Warren. As a foreigner who has been living in the States for many years now, uh, but so you have your, your feet in both camps. And as someone who has been working in the institution, you've been training people, you've been teaching people theology. What have you seen as the biggest... Um, 
stumbling block or blinder to the American Christian that you've been, you know, that you've taught where they just have a tr difficulty seeing a lot of the things that you're pointing out that maybe Christians in other parts of the world, that this isn't going to be a hangup, specifically as it relates to things like uh, justice issues or, or uh, you know, seeing Jesus as actually caring for the poor and not just not merely wanting to save people spiritually, but there's other things that are happening as well. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's a really, really interesting question. And I think the, the big piece for me that I see is that folks want us to be doctrinally accurate. Mm. Now, I'm not opposed to doctrinal accuracy. Um, it would be helpful. But um, when we invest all our energy there, we don't invest it anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And while folks are busy worrying about what does son of God mean or what does it mean to say, I believe in Jesus, when that's engaged as only a matter of getting the belief right, mm. We miss the whole emphasis of the gospel on mm -hmm. doing stuff. Uh, and it's it's just very easy to be comfortable and to, to get try and get that sorted out. In the meantime, there's stuff that needs to be done. Um, disciples do things. Mm. Um, disciples live a particular way. And Jesus sets out a pretty clear agenda. Um, and I know that in our middle-class churches, it's very hard to... To, um, to get in touch with that other than throw some money at it or sort of be a little bit patronizing whether we want to be or not. And I'm not, I'm not entirely critical of, you know, money is useful and you can buy stuff. Money can buy food, it can feed people. So I'm not entirely critical of that. But, but energy and labor, crucial resources too. Mm. And I think that's one of the struggles, at least, that we have. Mm -hmm. I'm always reminded of, um, of, I think it's Daniel Berrigan's of a comment that's, a, that's attributed to him, the Roman Catholic activist, that if you're going to follow Jesus, you better look good on wood. Um, oh, wow. Wow. Um, you know, and, and to, be, to be good on wood, yeah. it's not just to go and die, but, yeah. but to be crucified yeah, is yeah. a horrible, shameful ultimately dis yeah. dishonorable way to die right um and so to follow a crucified one is to get mucked up yeah the dishonorable and the messy and the broken and the vulnerable and the damage um, a great word picture in that that is that's just that's a that, pit, that, pit, yeah. little statement that's great yeah, I, like that. I like that it's widely attributed to him in a number of mm. sources i don't know if you ever said yeah. it, it's widely attributed to him so i think that's that's the real challenge. But if we, and, and all of this comes back to how we read. Mm -hmm. uh, if we read the Gospels only in terms of my soul and my spiritual life, right. then, of course, we don't see any of this. Right. And I'm not just talking about, you know, contemporary Christians. I mean, it's all through the scholarship as well. Um, the vicious stuff that when Jesus heals a blind person, he's healed, healing Jewish blindness to his identity as a Messiah. I mean, that's horrible. It's terrible stuff. Um, he's healing a blind person who can't see and now might get a new life. Right. No? I mean, that's what, very yeah. somatic. So there are ways of evading this if we don't put this sort of analysis of, of empire, of the very few beneficiaries and the great casualties 
if we don't put that in place as we read, right. then, you know, we can insulate ourselves from anything else. This is great. This is uh, excellent stuff. I, I just, I think we have to learn how to read the gospels. I think the entirety of the biblical text in light of competing empire, because I, I think even when you were talking a little bit about doing things for the poor and things of that nature and the, the political person in your, in your area, I think people hear that and they think, Oh no, what is he saying? And what does that mean from, you know, in terms of how I vote in terms of this political agenda that, it's like, no, I have to understand that Jesus's kingdom is a counter agenda that transcends all these different political uh, ideologies and things. It, it goes way beyond socialism and communism and capitalism, except it's counter to, to them all. So we need to figure out how to get beyond these categories and looking at Jesus in this light of, of his kingdom and, or his gospel and his empire. I think your works have just done a great job for that. They've been really helpful for me in helping illuminate the New Testament as I read and, and study and teach. So I want to thank you for that. Anything else that we want to you want to add or clarify before we end? Yeah, it'd be really nice to talk about Revelation sometime. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm writing a commentary on the book of Revelation right now. I don't know if you know yeah. that. The, the title of my commentary right now, uh, this is just a side note here, is um, Revelation, a love story. Mm. And, and I'm arguing that that the gospel of the kingdom is this gospel of lay down your lives for the sake of the nations. And the nations are redeemed through the sacrificial love of God's people, not through the acts of wrath. And that wrath is what the kingdoms of the world are. The effects of what appears to be wrath is actually what happens when the kingdoms are in power. And that, that that's just them being them and God saying, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to end all this and bring justice as the, the souls on the altar are crying out for justice. Like not yet. Uh, because the nations have been redeemed and the nations are redeemed through the sacrificial love of God's people uh, when they lay down the lives for the nations and, and the, the two witnesses. So uh, I'm picking up a lot of that theme and a lot mm -hmm. of what you're saying fits in with this. And just a side note, you know, for me, when I got in the book of revelation and you, and you're confronted with revelation 11, 12, and especially 12 and 13, you're thinking, Hey, wait a minute. What does that mean for the empire that I live in? And so I began thinking this way 25 years ago, as I began contemplating, yeah, you know, the empires of the world are ultimately empowered by the dragon. And we need to look, look at that from that perspective. So your book's been, your number of your books been really helpful in just helping me grasp that now into a New Testament studies. So I want to thank you for that. So, so I want to thank you for your time. Hey, so, pleasure. Thanks for yeah. the invitation. And it's good to, good to meet you even uh, by Zoom. Yeah, yeah, very good. So anything else, Vinny? No, I would just say I would encourage our folks, uh, you know, check out Warren has a number of uh, books out. I think probably a good introduction might be, you know, the the Roman Empire and the New Testament an essential guide. Yeah, it's somewhat scholarly, but I think it's pretty obtainable, uh, you know, by the yeah. lay person. So that, that would be a good one if you're interested in a lot of what we've talked about today. I'll put that in the show notes, uh, the link for that. So thank you very much. So, yeah. Well, thank you, Warren, for hanging out with us. It's been awesome to, uh, to finally meet you and talk with you. And I uh, had a great conversation. Hopefully this is blessing everyone. Uh, continue to check out what we're doing as we're reading through the Bible in uh, or reading through the New Testament in a year. Hopefully these have been continued to help you. I'm going to get that title right at some point. I, I flub that one every time. <laughs> but I uh, hope you're enjoying this and I uh, hope you're excited as we launch into our John series. We'll see everyone soon. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.